I don't want to get too much into like why truth is broken right now in the tech space. That's a whole other can of worms. But I think we can all appreciate that it's getting harder and harder to kind of know what's trustable. The moment we start believing that there is no other way, then it's just a race to the bottom. There will only be two companies in the world. And that's if we're lucky. There may only be one. have to be building a movement at the same time that we're building the technology. I think we need to be funding these kinds of solutions where it's like, this is the apocalypse event for the internet. Welcome to the Hacker Noon Podcast. I'm your host, Trent Lipinski. In this episode, I interview Tor Bear. He's working on the Enigma Protocol, which is a blockchain protocol that fakes privacy directly into the blockchain so that your data doesn't end up in the wrong hands. In this episode, we discuss privacy and the problems that are plaguing centralized tech and their issues with managing data. So stay tuned and learn about what's happening and how we can solve it with blockchain and the Enigma protocol. Hey, Hacker. Sorry to interrupt this great podcast. It's David Smook, founder and CEO of Hacker Noon, and we're raising money for the first time, and we're doing it from the people. If you want to buy shares in Hacker Noon, visit HackerNoonShares.com. Help us make the best place for tech professionals to publish. Welcome to the podcast. I'm here with Tor from Enigma. Tell us a bit about what you're working on. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me, man. At Enigma, I'm the head of growth. Enigma generally is working on privacy solutions in the decentralization space. Mm -hmm. So that means blockchain stuff. But for the most part, what we're doing is building ways to protect the data that's used by smart contracts. So right now, the way that smart contracts work, they're not very good at handling private or sensitive data because most of that data would have to be stored on a blockchain. Blockchains are made to be auditable, they're good for verification, but they're bad at privacy by design. So what we do is we enable blockchains with our underlying technology to use private and sensitive data still in smart contracts that get executed. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what you've done before working on this project? Yeah, it's it was a long and winding road to working on what we're working on now at Enigma, but I guess it all fits together only in retrospect when you kind of look back at how I got to where I am. I first started getting involved in blockchain and decentralization in grad school. So this would be 2014. I started my MBA at MIT. MIT was just picking up on the whole blockchain decentralization movement. They had just started offering the first courses internally. And I went and I I took a course at the Media Lab that was all about blockchain technology and the applications. And it was everything from going hands-on with the code to bringing in people who are already out there in the space. I remember we had Joe Lubin from Consensus come and like speak to the class, but this was like in mid-2015. This was like Mm -hmm. the very early days of Ethereum, of decentralization. So that was very inspiring to me. Because I think up to that point in my career, I had only known super centralized stuff. I'd worked at large organizations. I'd worked in the finance industry, which was terribly centralized. This was like a glimpse at like a crazy kind of future where everything was different and nobody knew how it was going to turn out. So that was when I first got exposed to a lot of these ideas around decentralization. But I didn't work full time until I joined Enigma June of last year. So it's been about a little over 16 months or something like that where I've been working full-time on some of these problems. 
And you guys did an ICO. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, Enigma last year, a little bit after I joined. So in September of last year, we held a token offering and we raised 45 million in the token offering in about three hours. But the entire process was not three hours. It was months and months of work. And I I would say the people really do underestimate how much work goes into anything like that. A lot of my responsibilities around that time were around communication because it's very difficult to understand something like what we're doing. It's highly technical. It's highly speculative. It's bleeding edge, essentially. And being able to communicate effectively, it's even a challenge now. But believe me, it it was an even bigger challenge over a year ago when we were first trying to explain to this broad community why privacy solutions were so critical. Yeah, and I want to dive into kind of the the problem here that you guys are trying to solve in Mm -hmm the implications of that. So to you, you know, you've worked for centralized companies, you've seen what kind of what's happening in Silicon Valley, there's been all these data breaches, all these vulnerabilities, all these leaks. From your experience, what is the problem with centralization? And why do we need privacy? Well, those are two related, I guess, different questions, but definitely related. So before I joined Enigma, I was working as a data scientist at Snapchat. And I've, I've been a data scientist in a, in a variety of roles at a variety of different companies. Companies, depending on where you're working as a data scientist, they see data science as a very different role. Some decide that you're a data engineer, you're responsible for making sure that data gets from point A to point B, you're building the pipelines. Other people are responsible for finding the insights in the data. They ask you like what it all means. And in other companies, like I think particularly the, the largest ones like Facebook or Google, where data is the product that's being repackaged and sold to advertisers, that's a really critical function for a data scientist is like figuring out how to turn data into money. But I think what became obvious pretty quickly is that companies don't really know what they're doing with that data. They figured out how to suck it all in, right? They figured out how to gather it. They really didn't prioritize protecting it in any way. They didn't secure the data pipelines. They don't even really know how to find the insights in the data. They say that they do, but a lot of the time, the company's mission is not so much to figure out what the data all means. These Silicon Valley companies, like their responsibility is really just to make sure that none of that data leaves the ecosystem Mm -hmm. and to make sure that none of the people producing that data, the users, leave that ecosystem. So you have products like Google and Facebook and their ecosystem of products that evolve to capture more and more of the user base and more and more of their time in the day so they can continue to yeah, you're, you're just at that point siphoning the data. And then at some point, they figure out what to do with it. And inevitably, what they decide to do with it is sell it to advertisers. But first and foremost, it's about keeping you engaged in that ecosystem for as long as possible. When your priority is collecting the data and repackaging the data, it's not going to be ultimately that you're responsible to the experience of the user. You're responsible to the experience of the advertiser. And what they want is more and more and more. And having worked at Snapchat and like I was on the revenue analytics team and requests would come in from advertisers. They were like, are you sure we can't advertise to people between the ages of like 13 and 17 in this particular state who eat hot dogs on Tuesdays? And like all they want is more and more and more. Like as an advertiser, no one's ever going to say, you know what? I don't need to know that. And I don't need, I don't need to know how the ad performed. And I don't need to know who the users are. They can't get, they can't get enough. And no one said stop. No one said this is too much. We, we've gone too far. They, they moved fast and they broke things. That was like a stated motto. And now it's broken. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think we've seen that with, you know, the Cambridge Analytica scandal with Facebook. They had an ad scandal recently where mm-hmm. their video views were not real. Um, yeah. So they were running ads on Facebook 
you know, you were paying for traffic and you were seeing a number reported in your dashboard that wasn't actual people. So now I think there's possibly some kind of like lawsuit or something like that. This is being exposed right now. So the the consequences of what you were just talking about, like mm-hmm. this is now coming to light. Like this is the mainstream media starting to cover this. This is in the news now. I mean, some of this stuff has been covered on Hacker Noon. So this is a real problem. These companies yep. built data pipelines that weren't secure, that were optimized for making money instead of privacy and security. Yeah, you're, you're touching on like so many critical things there. One is the idea that now the companies that built their businesses on this model are realizing that it comes with liabilities, direct liabilities. And you're starting to see legislation from GDPR to the California legislation to everything else about like how data should be utilized. It remains to be seen whether this legislation is beneficial or not, or whether things just get broken worse, or whether it actually helps to regulate the largest companies versus just oppress the smaller companies. We don't really know. And everything that you're saying about the video views, right? Like some people might say, well, something like that is inconsequential. It's a number on a screen. It's whatever. People take those numbers very seriously. Like I have friends who worked in the media industry whose companies looked at those figures and said, my God, you know, video is the next thing. Written word is dead. They laid off all of these like incredible writers and journalists and staffed up their video teams. And now they're laying off those video teams because they're realizing the traction wasn't really there. And all of these like media companies, journalists, the people who are responsible for communication, the people who ultimately maybe we should be able to trust more than the companies themselves, they don't really have jobs. They've totally handed over the reins to Facebook and Google, all the platforms that are responsible now for how data is not just collected, but curated. You know, if Facebook changed their feed algorithm and it was to the detriment of your company, like your BuzzFeed, and now they've changed their algorithm to optimize to show video in the feed, it doesn't matter if the number that they're showing you is right or not. What matters is that if you're not producing video content, it won't get found. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's control you've totally handed over. Hey, hackers. Do you have a timely tech story you want to get published? Maybe you recognize the way certain systems trend affecting our everyday lives or have a vision of the future for the blockchain technology. Maybe you're on the field of play and know what it takes to make a great team or how to remain agile in today's competitive tech-rich environment. Share your expertise with the community at large on Hacker Noon. Email us, stories at hackernoon.com and a real human will review your submission. You've hit the nail on the head because, I mean, here we are recording a video right now. This is going on YouTube. We have the audio. We have the video. I'm a journalist. I'm a writer. I've been writing in the tech industry for almost 20 years now, like, you know, since I was in high school. You can't get paid as a journalist. Like, what you you just completely hit the nail on the head there. Like, the people that it was their job, it was their profession who had training in ethics and what you can cover and how to do these things as a journalist and as a reporter and what objectivity is. A lot of these things have been replaced by algorithms. I literally had someone, a 17-year-old, ask me, you know, what the internet was like before algorithms because she grew up in a world where her entire experience with the internet, she's been force-fed information by an algorithm. She never had that experience of being able to go to a chat room or a forum and, you know, have kind of an organic experience where she had to seek information because so many algorithms now are just trying to push information at you. And it's crazy. It's a little terrifying. I've definitely, I've, I've written about this before because it's not like it's dead. There's tons of human curated resources out there. There's newsletters, you know, you can trace them back to individuals. I did an internship, an analytics internship at Spotify. 
And Spotify is a really interesting company because they're not so much concerned with monetizing user data directly, although that's part of the business model for their free plan. They were concerned about how do we use user data to create new kinds of products. And again, the goal is to keep them listening longer and everything else. But as a user, you know, you get excited when a, a data-driven product works for you. So they launched this thing, Discover Weekly. Are you a Spotify user? I'm Apple Music, so but Fair I have enough. used it. Um, Fair so enough. I'm very familiar with it. Yeah, Spotify launched Discover Weekly, and Apple Music is now a mix of like algorithm and curation. But when Spotify launched Discover Weekly, they had a lot of traction right away. All it was was an algorithm that would go and recommend to the user 30 new songs in a week, where you would now be like, oh, here's the, the 30 hottest things that are relevant to my interests. It was different and customized for every user. So as a user, you got the experience of feeling like, oh, here's this thing for me. And it took a bit, but now I've, I've started looking at other people's Discover Weeklies and I'm realizing that a lot of these things are very similar. It involves a lot of new releases. It involves a lot of stuff that like where they've already signed with a major label. It's starting to feel like these algorithms are converging, especially if the only intelligence to the algorithm is show me more of what I've already consumed, then you have what I call, or I, it's not just what I call, but it's, it's essentially like a dampening function. It's a negative feedback loop. Where the more you listen to something, like the more of it you get, you, you converge on a on a single taste. That's I noticed this on YouTube too. Yeah, uh, YouTube their recommendation system. Like you watch one video and like about dogs, and your whole feed is dogs for a week. No, I and I love dogs, and that's the problem. Is like I'll watch <laughs> as many dogs as YouTube can throw at me, and there's no there's no shortage of dogs on the internet or cats or <laughs> or pretty much any adorable creature. Like it's it's not going to end. And honestly, as users, we shouldn't be the ones who say, "All right, enough is enough." Like we can have self control, but the whole point is that these are addictive products. Getting more of something that you're already accustomed to getting a lot of is the definition of feeding an addiction. People can argue about whether it's like overall a, a good or a bad that we've managed to optimize so many of these recommendation algorithms and that they power everything from, like you said, uh, with YouTube, but also Netflix and Amazon and, and any other like major tech company over a certain valuation. You're, you're going to see those same kind of loops. I'm not here to say that I have a great solution to that. But where I do believe Enigma can play a role and companies like Enigma in the decentralization space is we don't have to centralize all of the decisions about what we consume and what gets shown to us. There has to be a better system for both creating and discovering and monetizing content or software. There just has to be a better model because mm -hmm. the, the moment we start believing that there is no other way, then it's just a race to the bottom. There will only be two companies in the world. And that's if we're lucky. There may only be one. And we're, we're seeing that centralization happening right now in the tech industry. There's actually been something that's happening uh, recently with Gab. It's a free mm. Twitter alternative. Domain provider, like, pushed them off. Their hosting provider's pushing them off. And, like, you know, there's always this argument of, oh, if you don't like Twitter, go build your own. It's a free market. Well, it's not a free market when you can't host your domain anywhere. It's not a free market when you can't put something uh, on the cloud and all the cloud providers are refusing to host you because right. you've got potentially 1% more hate speech than a mainstream platform, which is right. what the actual statistics are for Gab is they have about 1% more hate speech content than Twitter. So I guess the magic number right now is about 3%. So apparently like Twitter is somewhere around 3%. Gab is around somewhere around like 4%. So who or what decides, you know, at what point where societally, if you have a component of your software where it's being used for nefarious purpose, 
even if that's only 4% of the user base, at what point is it the free market to be able to participate in these kinds of things? And what does that look like? The entire tech industry is facing these challenges right now in this moment. With all of that said, can you tell mm-hmm. me a bit more about Enigma and why privacy is actually a solution to a lot of these problems? Yeah, so Enigma started in 2015. It was it spun out of MIT. It was based on research done by our CEO and co-founder who's named Guy Ziskind. And that course that I mentioned earlier that I took at the Media Lab, he was one of the teachers. So I, I got very lucky and I had no idea you know, at the time, how lucky I was getting, but to learn from like one of the leaders in this space so early on. So he wrote this original white paper called Decentralizing Privacy. And then he followed that up with the Enigma white paper. And now these two white papers combined have over 500 citations. These have now exploded. I think even just like a few months ago, there were only 300 combined citations. So a lot of people simultaneously waking up to this idea of decentralization combined with this idea of still protecting privacy. The reason that's such a powerful idea is let's look at decentralization for just a second. The one that everybody talks about right now, like the big decentralized technology that everybody talks about is blockchain. And the way that blockchain works is that it's supposed to be this, you know, decentralized, immutable ledger that's auditable where you can, you know, see the history of the chain very easily. And that's a very powerful concept, especially if you're looking for a source of truth. I don't want to get too much into like why truth is broken right now in the tech space. That's a whole other can of worms. But I think we can all appreciate that it's getting harder and harder to kind of know what's trustable. And, and, and blockchain has been described, I think, in a number of books now as like a trust machine. And it's very good at trust and verification. But as I mentioned earlier, by design it's bad at privacy for the same reason. It's designed to come to like a public consensus about the state of something like that, let's say a ledger of transactions, but that's public. The issue with that is that any data that you're gonna keep on a blockchain is gonna be known. So the example that I use is like a lot of journalists earlier this year when the Cambridge Analytica stuff was coming out, I kept reading articles that were like, oh, you know, Facebook has betrayed us. You know, if only we had blockchain, if only Facebook was using blockchain, Mm -hmm. uh, we would have all been saved. The reality is that if Facebook had built all this stuff on a blockchain with like no other technology involved, it would be worse than Cambridge Analytica because nobody would have had to hack Facebook to expose all that data. It would already be exposed. Mm-hmm. The whole it's it's still like that's a decentralized technology, but blockchains are as I said like they're they're not a privacy solution. They're also not very scalable. Right? Like they're not designed to handle every single computation that, that you can think of. There's a lot of like networks being built on top of blockchains to solve for this issue of scalability. And Enigma is, is one of them. Where we differ from some of these scalability solutions is that we're privacy first, that we allow the data that's being used uh, with blockchains. We provide a network where data comes into our network encrypted computations are performed on that data within our network on the encrypted data without ever exposing that data to the nodes themselves in the Enigma network that are performing the computations. And then in the end, we commit the result of the computation back to a blockchain. So we don't use the blockchain for anything that it's bad at. We don't use it to store like data publicly. We're not using a blockchain to do all these computations. We're using the Enigma network for that. And to do that, we use a different kind of decentralized technology, which is all around secure computation. And secure computation goes back to the 80s. Blockchain, Bitcoin white paper, we just celebrated 10 years just now, came out in uh, 2008. 
a lot of this work on secure computation was being done in the early 80s. So we've combined these secure computation technologies that have been described for decades with this very recent innovation of blockchain. And with these things together, that's what Enigma is building with. We're, we're trying to build a platform for, as you're describing, these truly unstoppable decentralized applications, you know, that are not subject to like, oh, your hosting provider got pulled. You know, they're supposed to be uncensorable and unstoppable. And to do it, you know, you do need a privacy solution and a scalability solution. That's that's what we're trying to provide. Hey, oh, you got a great tech story you want to get published? Maybe something about bots taking over Twitter or how Bitcoin actually works? Or maybe you just have a story about how to build a great software, or a great team. Get your expertise published on Hacker Noon. Email us stories at hackernoon.com and a real human will review your submission. And I, I love the concept of, you know, you only get the end result written to the blockchain so that you're not having to necessarily even move data from A to B. You're able to just compute it within the network and then you get the result that you need because the result is what matters. I'd argue probably 99% of the time for most use cases, you just need the result of the processing. You mm -hmm. don't necessarily need access to the raw data. Right. So maybe there's some fringe use cases that are in that like remaining 1%. There's a very, very significant majority that do not need that access. So with the systems we have today, many of those systems are just completely open and exposed. That's why there's so many leaks. There's so many companies that have been hacked recently. That's why we've had so many data scandals from Equifax to Yahoo to Google. I mean, Google's just shut down their entire social network because it had a vulnerability, which they yep. then hid from the public. Google Plus is, I think it's, by the time this episode airs, I think it'll be completely shut down. These are, I mean, that was a, probably a multi-million, if not multi-billion dollar effort by Google. A few years later, because of their privacy issues, they're just shutting it down because it can't be fixed. Yep. So that's how serious these problems are. That's why we need a solution that takes privacy as a, yeah. uh, you know, as a, intention first. I want to be clear about one thing, which is like, I, I have worked for large organizations. Large organizations are not like evil entities in themselves, like, but they are systems. You know, there's a lot of really incredible people working at these large organizations. Like we just had today, like a bunch of people walk out of Google to protest the way that they're handling uh, all the allegations of sexual misconduct, right? Like there's great individuals internally who are advocating for like the positions they know ethically are right. But the way that these corporations are set up and it goes back to their business models, the corporations themselves are not incentivized to fix these things. And like with the Facebook video scandal, uh, at least with like misinterpreting the view counts, there's no actual pressure to hold yourself accountable as one of these organizations. You are checking your own work constantly and you rely on the trust of the public. Well, now if you're a large organization, you have two problems. One is you've totally lost the trust of the public, some more than others. I keep seeing stats where like people like have totally lost trust in Facebook and for some reason they totally trust Amazon. And I think that's, it's not backwards, but it's just at least you're missing half the problem. Um, but there's also now this issue of liability. Like you are liable for these data leaks and these data hacks and you're going to be sued for billions, you know, and you're going to be held accountable by governments and states. You know, the solution that we're building in Enigma is not just to say like, we're going to, you know, build a better thing and organizations are going to die and centralization is dead. It's mostly to say, like, we're building a solution that we think works better for individuals, but also for institutions. Like, we don't think companies 
want to be liable for all of this data. Yeah, they've built business models on top of it, but if there was a better way where they could still, as you said, have the benefit of understanding the meaning of the data, like the result of the computation over the data, they can know that the analysis was done correctly, but they don't have the liability for the raw data. I think that at this point, they, they want that solution. They, they're actually desperate for a solution like that to exist. And, and we want to provide that solution to the industry as well as the individual, right? Like there's no reason to try to build in isolation. We want to solve this problem for everybody. And, and the beauty of the blockchain is you can also build your own consensus and incentive mechanisms into this as well. So mm -hmm. now you're incentivizing the behaviors that you want that reduce liability, which is a good thing for these companies. And I agree with you. A lot of the people who work for these companies, they are trying to do good uh, and they are ethical people. But as you said, unfortunately, they're put into a situation where those companies are designed a certain way to optimize for revenue. It's about return on investment. It's about what their stock ticker price says. And that is unfortunately measured by the cost of data today. If we can change the incentive so that it's measured by both the results of the data and, and change the incentive so that you know the data is handled ethically and morally and reduce their liability at the same time, it's kind of a win-win for everyone. Because now the companies themselves have a better way of doing this where they're not putting their users at risk. That's that's what we're hoping for, and honestly, you know, we're not we're not the only people who are conscious of this problem. Mm -hmm. You know, we may, we may have been early movers, you know, and we're proud to still be leaders. But this problem doesn't get solved, you know, in an academic environment, right? Like, there's a reason that we're like uh, we're building open source. Like, our code is out there. Our testnet is public. Like, the reason we're doing this is because we know that this is not the type of problem that gets solved by a bunch of people in a lab and then five years later they say, oh, you know, we did it, now come, come build on this. Like, it's going to be a collaborative effort spanning decades like the internet was originally. Like, this is, this is very, very early days. You know, we, we just have to be humble at the same time as being, like, really hungry. Like, hungry to build these solutions because it's, it's really critical, really critical to, like, where this all goes. Like, the next two years even are, are super, super important to the future of all of this. No, I agree. I mean, it's what we're seeing in 2018. I mean, it's been a, it's, it's been a fascinating year um, to see, you know, the reaction of Silicon Valley and these major tech companies and what's happening politically. I mean, you know, all of these things, unfortunately, have become connected because tech has become so critical to everyone's lives. Um, you know, everyone's carrying around smartphones and you know, we, we have supercomputers in our pockets now. I mean, Apple, you know, they just released new iPads. Their iPads have more computational capacity than the new MacBooks <laughs> that they <laughs> release. We're seeing this shift taking place in real time. Uh, and as it's all happening, you know, we have to kind of almost take a step back and look at, you know, what the problems are that we're trying to solve and how to solve those problems. Um, and, you know, I definitely appreciate what you guys are doing at Enigma. And, you know, it's, it's really, you're taking on a major challenge here that, you know, impacts the entire tech industry. Yeah, it is a huge challenge. I mean, we, we try to be really open about our progress just so we can attract more builders to us. Like we're, we're at building at the protocol level. So we only succeed if people build their solutions with us or on top of us. And a big piece of my role at Enigma is, is growing our community. 
And a big piece of that is education. You know, it, it's ex it is explaining these issues from the ground up. And when your day to day is mostly consumed with political strife, you know, not just in the U.S. but pretty much everywhere. Like, there's all these like populist movements and everything that are like potentially really upsetting the balance of democracy. I know that this is not going to be everybody's most important issue in their day to day, and that's what makes us so dangerous. Is that it's subtle. You know, the way that this has been eroded for decades. Yeah, the public consciousness. Is like saying now, oh, this is important. Yeah, the New York Times is writing about it, but it's been an issue for a long time. You, there's no easy fix, but we, we have to be building. We know this at Enigma. We have to be building a movement at the same time that we're building a technology, and that really does come from just education, just making sure people understand that not only like is this a problem, but there are solutions, solutions that go beyond just regulation, but new types of technologies. Like one analogy I use is like climate change. And again, not to get into a new rabbit hole, but climate change is not easy to legislate away. Countries move slow. And we're, you know, when you're talking about something that's as high stakes as like the future of the ecosystem of the planet, that's kind of tough, right? Like you don't want to wait for countries to suddenly sing Kumbaya and all come to the table at the same time. Like that doesn't seem to be working so well. Wouldn't it be great if at the same time we could pursue some of these like moonshot solutions that could at least slow the process of climate change? Like Y Combinator just announced that they were like starting a whole like carbon focused program for funding startups that are looking at these kinds of creative solutions. I think this is the same thing. I think we need to be funding these kinds of solutions where it's like, this is the apocalypse event for the internet. And I, I think it deserves the same level of resourcing. You know, yes, it would be bad if the entire atmosphere was, you know, 10 degrees hotter, four degrees hotter, even one degree hotter is kind of a catastrophe. The internet is, <laughs> we're kind of reaching that same tipping point. Like at a certain point, there will be no going back. We'll have handed everything over to, to the centralized powers that be. And as we've seen, they really have no incentive to fix anything at all. Like it, it needs an investment of, of actual capital, but it also needs the, the investment of our attention. Yeah, and the community effort as well to, you know, rally around these, these ideas. And it, you know, it's about setting, uh, it's, it's about sending an intention and, you know, prioritizing what your values are. Um, and unfortunately there's, there's not, you know, a, you hear a lot of talk about that in Silicon Valley. Oh, what's your culture? What's your values? Whatever. But yeah. at the end of the day, if you're not baking that into your code and if it's not going into your product, you can have whatever company culture you want. If it's not reflected in your actual product and how you're interacting with your users, it, it gets lost, unfortunately. So, But anyways, this is the Hack Noon podcast. So I got to ask you, what is sometime in your life that you have hacked something? Uh, oh, wow. My life has kind of been like a U shape. I feel like I was a hacker before the age of like 11. And then I got like real normal, you know, and then I was like, like, I remember, um, I won't say that. I think the last thing I hacked before like uh, graduating college was I jailbroke my iPhone in uh, like immediately when I got it in like 2008, mm -hmm. like this is one of the first ones and that was great. And I had no problem doing it. I was mm -hmm. like, I was very excited to do it. I was like, I've got this cool piece of technology. I want it to do anything I want. Who are you to say that I can't like, you couldn't even like customize your background back then. You couldn't do anything that like should have just like shipped with the product. There and, was no app store for people who are listening yeah. who didn't use the first iPhone. It was very limited. Yeah, talk about like closed centralized systems, right? Like the only reason there's an app store is because they knew they could monetize it. They, if they couldn't have monetized it, they wouldn't have had it. So at, at that point, I was like, I had no problem with it. And then I think what happened for like the next six years is when, when you enter the working world, 
you stop hacking a little bit. Like you start being like, okay, I have to figure out how to thrive in like the system that already exists. And I think there was like a period of like six years where I was just, you know, trying to figure out if there was a, an industry for me, a job for me, like something that was going to make sense. And it wasn't until I got back to MIT in 2014 where there's a massive hacker culture, right? Like that's, that's what they pride themselves on. That's what I was excited to experience. Then I got straight back into it. And now it's just all about this decentralization stuff. Like the idea, like what I th when I think about hacking now, I don't think about like hacking like code so much as I think about just like hacking incentive systems. Like I was a behavioral economics major in undergrad. I think about like how can we like hack Google, not at the code base, but at the personnel level. Like how can I convince somebody working at Google that working on something that what we're doing like at Enigma is worth their time, is worth that risk versus, you know, like the, you know, certain multi six figure salary and stock option pool that they're going to get staying in their day to day. Like my, my job now is about like is hacking people's risk profiles and convincing them that like the riskiest thing they can do is keep, is keep going with the norm. Uh, and that actually working on something like we're working on and like joining our community and joining our team is is actually like the safe bet because you better believe that you know if this doesn't get solved it's it's gonna get worse that's that's me i'm I'm hacking <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm hacking incentives i'm hacking I'm hacking the uh, i'm happy I'm hacking the people more than the code now yeah I'm cool with I'm cool with that no i I, I I'm doing the same thing that's what this podcast is about this is about I love it man I love it and talking about these kind of topics. I mean, the whole point of the show is to hack people's minds. Uh, I'm trying to, you know, wake people up to what's happening right now. So Mission uh, accomplished. I really, yeah, I really appreciate, you know, you coming on the show and talking about all this stuff. So can you give us a, a bit of your final thoughts here on, you know, privacy and what you're doing in Enigma? Yeah, sure. If, if people want to keep track of what we're doing, like, like I said, we're an open source project as much as anything. Like we're, we're very transparent with the community and have been since inception. So if you go, our, our Twitter is uh, twitter.com slash enigma, M as in Mary, PC. Uh, you can, we tweet there all the time about like what we're coding, what we're building. We have blog.enigma.co. I think we're averaging like one to two blog posts a week about what we're building, what our, what our partners and collaborators are building. I do a ton of writing on that blog. I also write personally. So if you follow me on Twitter, I'm Tor Bear, T-O-R-B as in boy, A-I-R. I should probably shut up sometimes, um, and I don't, but maybe that makes me a good follow. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, if, if you care about this stuff, like join the community, like tweet at me. Like I'm happy to get you involved because there is just so much that can be done right now. And we are, we are at the very earliest possible stage. If, if you thought you were late to the game, thinking about this stuff right now, you, you are not, this is it. This is where, this is where like the very first battle really begins. Now, now that we even know what the problem we're trying to solve is, I feel like now we can start fighting for the real solutions. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, Trent, thanks for having me. I, I really appreciate it. And, Keep up the great work. This concludes another episode of the Hacker Noon Podcast. I'm your host, Trent Lipinski. Please don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes and YouTube and follow us on social media. You can also find us at hackernoon.com and podcast.hackernoon.com for more episodes. Thank you for listening.